0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. It's deja vu for Mercedes Torragano of Denver, watching Hurricane Ida pummel New Orleans. She fled the city in 2005. Her children still live there and managed to evacuate.
1: I didn't have to do much to encourage them either because of Katrina. They knew to get out. Long lines on the highway, a lot of detouring, but they did get out.
0: Coming up, the parallels Torrigano sees between Ida and Katrina, and how her life is still affected. Then, the more trees, the richer the neighborhood, the better people's health. A new duel lets you gauge a city's tree equity. And redrawing the state's political boundaries reveals a lot about Chicano history and political power.
2: CPR is powered by your generosity. And when it comes to membership, monthly donations make a larger gift more manageable. It's why many donors are making the switch from annual giving to monthly giving, setting up their monthly Evergreen membership with a checking or savings account. It's easy to change how and when you give. Email membership at CPR.org. That's membership at CPR.org. And thank you for your support.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. When Hurricane Ida hit the Gulf Coast, we thought of Mercedes Torregano. She fled New Orleans ahead of Hurricane Katrina in 2005 and relocated to Denver. We first met years ago when she came in to sing for us. Torregano is a member of a prominent choir in town, and she and I reconnected over video chat Monday. Mercedes, thank you for being with us. I'm sorry it's under these circumstances.
1: Yeah, Well, not the greatest of time, but...
0: But a familiar time, I imagine.
1: It is. It is.
0: Tell me, first off, if you still have connections to New Orleans, to folks there, and what you're hearing.
1: Yes, I have connections. All my children live there, and also my siblings.
0: What are you hearing from them?
1: You can't hear from them right now. The last I heard from them was... A text at 3 o'clock this morning. My children made it out. My children evacuated my three adult children and their family. My sister is there because she couldn't travel. So her son stayed with her, them and their family. She's near the lakefront. That area, the water started coming over that lakefront area very early on. So she does have flooded streets and her... Of course, power is out. So it looks like it's going to be a while before we can reach them.
0: Did you encourage your kids, your adult kids to evacuate? Was that a decision they made?
1: Oh. oh, no, no. Yes, I did encourage them. Two of them, this is their first large hurricane. My oldest son and my daughter, she went to Georgia and he went to Texas. My youngest son was with me and Katrina and he, he went to Shreveport. I didn't have to do much to encourage them either because of Katrina. They knew to get out. Long lines on the highway, a lot of detouring, but they did get out. What are you thinking
0: right now, just, you know, given the timing of this storm coming on the 16th anniversary of Katrina?
1: Well, I mean, some people say deja vu, some people say karma. But uh, it is the season of hurricane. The fact that it actually came on the exact same day Almost around the same time, that is that is something to think about. I mean, a warning signal? I don't know. I wouldn't call it that. But it was a little mind-blower.
0: I just was reading back on Katrina, and I want to remind folks that it claimed 1,800 lives. Yes. Will you take me back, Mercedes, to the days just before and after Katrina for you? What do you remember?
1: Oh, for me, for Katrina, the days before, was packing up and trying to get out of the city. But I had to wait because my son worked in the hospital and he couldn't leave until they released him. And my daughter-in-law was a pharmacist, so we couldn't get on the road until late. So we were stuck with 15 hours of traffic just getting to Houston. That only takes four and a half five hours, it mm. took us 15 hours to get to Houston. But even getting to Houston, many people went to Texas because of the Contra flow by shutting I-10. The only thing you could do was go to Texas. Mm. One and that was very crowded with a lot of New Orleanians. So even maneuvering Texas was a little rough, but we had to get out of Texas also because of Hurricane Rita. So um, that's how I ended up here in Denver.
0: Right. Rita came something like two weeks later. Did you lose friends or neighbors in Katrina?
1: Oh, I lost many. I lost family members. Even people who had had health effects after Katrina. I lost uh, my sister-in-law and a brother-in-law, all due to living in the trailers from FEMA. And I can't tell you the name or whatever it is they got from the trailers, but the trailers were not kind to them. But uh, I did lose friends also. Many persons couldn't get out of Katrina, just like they couldn't get out of Ida because of not having transportation and not income to quickly move out. Because, as I said, this one came up very quickly, as Katrina did. When they come that quick, it's not like you have the type of income that you can just save thousands of dollars to say a hurricane's coming. Don't touch this thousand because we needed to travel. Mm -hmm. You know, that's not the income of a lot. It wasn't the income of a lot of persons who had to try and get out of New Orleans then 16 years ago and now 16 years later.
0: Mercedes, I was reading that the Karnofsky store on South Rampart Street uh, was destroyed in the storm. This apparently Mm -hmm. was a home to Louis Armstrong, Mm -hmm. uh, a second home to a young Armstrong, according to the National Park Service. He'd worked Mm -hmm. for this family, ate meals with them. And I, I wonder if that's... Uh, an area you know there on South Rampart. I know
1: the area. I'm familiar with the area. But I can't tell you what it's looking like now.
0: Yeah. What, did you lose your home? What happened to your home in Katrina?
1: No, I lost I lost my home. My home had 10.5 feet of water. So I lost everything. But um, as you know, we, we're, we're in a bowl. We got so much water around us. It's very easy to flood. And when that water rush in, it goes right into the homes. Most of the homes, a lot of the homes are right ground level. So it go into the homes and flood it right away. Are there
0: things, are there items you still miss? Oh, yeah. like what? Yeah,
1: I have three children, but I have no pictures of their, of their life. I mean, as far as children going to school, growing up, school activities, marriage, weddings, I have none of that. I have nothing from my parents. In other words, you always want to leave something for your children from their grandparents and my mother and my grandparents, but I don't have, we don't have any of those things. And the sad part about it is I don't have any, my sister does not have any. All of us that were living in New Orleans that meant all of our valuable treasures about our life history and our family history was destroyed.
0: How long did it take financially and in terms of paperwork and dealing with insurance companies? How long was the tale of Katrina in your life? Does that make sense from a, almost an administrative and, you know, bureaucratic? Dealing
1: yeah, with Dealing with all the paperwork? For me, I would say it took me about a year and a half. Hmm. About a year and a half
0: was it a financial hit?
1: Oh yes. I taught out of school that salary was gone. I had my own salon, so all my clients were gone and the shop was gone. So for me, yeah, it's a big financial hit. I'll tell you, a huge financial hit. Uh, one that I was not used to and and I can honestly say still not used to but you got to adjust. So I just have learned to adjust with the new as they say now, a new normal. But I used to say, with the new life that has been given to me.
3: Hmm.
0: How long have you been in Denver now, Mercedes? We met. We met some years ago.
1: I came here with Katrina, so I'm here 16 years now. And why Denver? I have friend a friend that lives here, a dear friend, a close friend. He lives here, and I used to travel here three to four times a year, uh, at least, definitely every holiday and. I liked Denver when I traveled here. So when it was time for me to evacuate, I called him, and he flew from Denver to Houston and drove me back here to Denver. Oh, wow. And opened his home to me. So this has been my home for the last 16 years.
0: We can say, Mercedes, that you sought higher ground, quite literally, huh?
1: Definitely, as I I think I always tell people, I came from below sea level to miles.
0: Have you been back to New Orleans, and what does it look like to you compared to before Katrina? And uh, obviously, you have have no idea how it looks now, but um, just tell us about that.
1: I have been back. I used to travel back, try and go back every six months. And it was redeveloping very well in certain areas. But some areas in New Orleans still were boarded from Katrina. Some areas had not even returned to the standards where they were. Other areas were remodeled and revamped and they moved on. But a lot of New Orleans still had a long way to go from what I saw. And I made it a point to drive around the city every time I went home. So it was always wonderful to get home. But I see all of the construction going on in Denver and, the different cities I've traveled to, but it was never to that magnitude in New Orleans. And I can say I didn't see that up until the last time I went home and I just, the only thing stopped me from going back home again was COVID. So I was looking forward to going home for Thanksgiving and I'm still looking forward to going home for Thanksgiving Hmm. because I haven't been there since because of COVID. I feel
0: like people who uh, are from New Orleans and who have lived in New Orleans, and I Mm -hmm. suppose it's also true of those who have visited it, have a relationship and a love for that city that is stronger, I think, than most people's senses of place and connections to other communities. Do you still feel that? And why do you think that is about New Orleans?
1: Well, it's true. I tell people all the time because they always tell me, well, you're not in New Orleans anymore. Your home is Denver. Denver is not my home. Denver is my second home. Hmm. My home is New Orleans, Louisiana. And some of my tears, even this weekend, have been not only for my family, but what's going to happen to my city. My, my love of New Orleans grows deep. It, it will always be deep. It is home. That's where my parents were from. That's what I've always known as a child to an adult. So, I mean, I love the warm atmosphere, the friendly people. It's not all about Bourbon Street. Uh, There's more to New Orleans than Bourbon Street. Bourbon Street is wonderful. Don't get me wrong, it's awesome. But there's a whole lot more in New Orleans. I mean, our music, our traditional festivals, our, it's just a family vibe that I don't get a lot here in Denver. I will honestly tell you that. I think all of us, anybody from New Orleans will tell you, once you've been there, you got bit by the bug. <laughs> it's a good bug.
0: <laughs> I vaguely remember, Mercedes, when we met, uh, you were singing and you still sing with the Spirituals Project Choir. I think yeah. you were having trouble finding good gumbo here.
1: <laughs> That's why I make it myself still. Okay. And I know I promised you a boat. <laughs> well...
0: We'll find time for that, but maybe, yes. maybe now isn't the moment.
1: No, no, but we'll get to it.
0: Thank yes. you for your time. I, I'm so glad your kids got out, and I'd love an update on your sister when you get one, okay?
1: I will, I will. And keep us all in your prayers, New Orleans and the whole state of Louisiana, the whole Gulf Coast, because this is a big one. This was a big one this time.
0: Mercedes Torregano fled Hurricane Katrina in 2005 and relocated to Denver. She's been watching Ida pummel New Orleans, where her family still lives. And she tells me this morning her sister's going to need a place to stay. So Mercedes is trying to find a hotel room in New Orleans from back here in Denver. Money might not grow on trees, but trees grow on money, says our next guest, Chris David. He's with the nonprofit American Forests and helped create a new tree equity score. The online tool assesses communities on their canopies down to the neighborhood. Metro Denver's in there, Grand Junction, Colorado Springs, and Pueblo. And how verdant a place is, is related to health, crime, and wealth. Chris David says U.S. cities are about half a billion trees short. And Chris, welcome to the program.
4: Thanks for having me, Ryan.
0: I think of how relieved I am on a hot day when I can be under a tree, even if it's just for a few seconds as I walk. Uh, Highs, by the way, of 95 in Denver today, 98 in Pueblo, 93 in Junction, Uh, which is why I'd love to start with Heat and climate change, because people in leafy neighborhoods are likely to fare better in the face of global warming, right?
4: Absolutely. Uh, and it could be 20 degrees difference in, in, in some neighbors, neighborhoods. Um, that's especially during heat waves that we've experienced this summer and, and many times in the last couple of summers. That's life or death infrastructure. Um, providing shade and evapotranspiration to to reduce temperatures uh, uh, on those really extreme days.
0: 20 degrees is huge. I, I think of the shade. I mentioned the shade, but uh, talk to me about evaporative. Uh, what's the word you use there? I should remember Evva- this. One.
4: Evapotranspiration. Yeah, yeah. evapotranspiration. Um, I should
0: remember that from, bio, from from my nature courses, my science courses.
4: Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's essentially the, the, the process of, of pulling moisture out of the air. And, uh, and along with that, it, it reduces temperatures in, in the neighborhood.
0: Tell us more about the connection between trees and health. I mean, you even looked at hospitalizations.
4: Uh, to some extent, we used uh, uh, relatively new data from the CDC, that, that incorporates self uh, reported hospitalizations and conditions whether it's respiratory health uh, cardiovascular disease even mental and physical health as well um, and, and those those people that that have those conditions are at a greater risk to the impacts of climate changes in particular extreme heat we talk about um, and, and and trees can can help to, at least minimize or reduce um, the impacts that climate can have on those conditions, whether it's through heat uh, reduction in temperatures, um, re- reductions in air pollution uh, as well. Trees pull lots of air pollutants out of the air as well. Um, so uh, those, those people that, that have those conditions are, are at a much greater risk.
0: I think I generally knew that trees pulled pollution out of the air. I don't think I knew that they pulled a lot of it out of the air. Will you say just a few more words about that? Just because the air has been so magnificently bad here in Metro Denver lately.
4: Yeah, a- absolutely. So um, whether it's particulate matter, um, sulfur dioxide, nitrogen dioxide, ozone, uh, it pulls about over 250,000 tons a year. Um if, if we were to achieve tree equity, that is, that's five, that, that half a billion that you mentioned, yeah. uh, we'd be uh, pulling over 250,000 tons annually of, of those pollutants uh, out of the air.
0: Well, let's talk about the equity piece of this. So that line I began with, trees grow on money, that's your line. How, how <laughs> strong is the tie between a neighborhood's wealth and its leafiness?
4: So uh, it's it's actually uh, quite staggering. Uh, sometimes uh, the the wealthiest neighborhoods are, often have sixty five percent more tree canopy cover than the poorest neighborhoods. Um, that's wrong, <laughs> um, but that's uh, you know caused by multiple reasons. But oftentimes, uh, historic and uh, uh, generation uh, generations of uh, neglect. Uh, in these poorer neighborhoods uh, that have that have caused this, and we we think that's wrong, and that's really the the key reason why we created tree equity score in the first place,
0: yeah. so I want to put a finer point on that. Uh, what What is it about generational inequity and perhaps poverty? that means today some neighborhoods have fewer trees than others. Is that about property ownership? Is that about investment? Because I, I do think of some communities like Denver that make trees available for free, uh, if you if you want to plant them on your property. So help help us unpack that.
4: Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, sometimes it is just the political power of wealthier neighborhoods and wealthier residents. But uh, historically, uh, racist housing practices um, uh, and redlining have been a, a huge driver in that. And you mentioned it right there, Ryan. Uh, Home ownership, the lack of the ability to create wealth through your home, um, has has also exacerbated that problem as well Uh, uh, in cities across the country. And there's really great research coming out of the University of Richmond. They're trying to quantify that and and actually map that um, um, in every city around the country where those housing, uh, discriminatory housing practices were happening are the poorest. they're the, they have the most people of color, oftentimes, uh, and they have the least amount of trees.
0: So this is related to wealth. This is related to race. And I'll just say that I've tweeted a link to this tree equity tool at CPR Warner. Um, I, I checked out my neighborhood in Denver, and it scores somewhere between 97 and 100 Uh, It helps, perhaps, to be near the Denver Botanic Gardens in my case. Uh, Meanwhile, across town, over by Mile High Stadium, residents of Sun Valley show up on your map as orange with a score of just 31. I mean, it sounded to me like you were hugely surprised, Chris Chris David, about the the findings here, that the disparities perhaps even bigger than you imagined.
4: Yeah, I, mean, I think I think intuitively, especially working in this in this field, we've uh, we knew that these dis- discrepancies and disparities existed, um, but to sort of see the number on the page based on hard data um, really was stark, and, and 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 sort of made made us sort of really all the more. Um, uh, motivated to, to to really work to, to try to rectify this problem. Yeah,
0: so once again, uh, I've tweeted a link to the Tree Equity tool at CPR Warner, and you can get neighborhood-level data in Colorado. I found Grand Junction, Colorado Springs, Pueblo, in addition to Metro Denver. And uh, Chris David, before I talk about how you amassed this data, Uh, We've said that you believe the country to be about half a billion trees short. Where do you come up with that number?
4: So we it's all from our tree equity score data, and it's really from that measure of need that we've set. Uh, And you mentioned right before the break, satellite information. Uh, We work with a company called Earth Define uh, that is a sort of a company that makes satellite imagery, all the satellite imagery coming out of the federal government or other places actionable. Uh, And they use AI to to provide information that's useful to cities and and others. And they provided us with uh, really incredible data uh, across the country, um, for tree canopy cover that allowed us to do this analysis at the neighborhood scale. So we use that data to measure need. And we set goals and targets for every urbanized neighborhood in the country um, based on the region that they're in uh, and the sort of demographics, uh, the the population density of the area. Uh, And then once we set those goals, we identified the deficit um, of trees in in neighborhoods. And that's how we got there. We just summed all those uh, deficits up that we had across those 150,000 urbanized uh, census block groups and uh, got to about 500 million trees.
0: Fascinating. I, I mentioned uh, before the break that my neighborhood scores a rather impressive 97 or 100. So I have the privilege of of living uh, beneath a pretty good tree canopy. But uh, Sun Valley, a neighborhood in Denver, scores 31. What are the steps to solving that? especially let's say that I'm a renter in that neighborhood and it's not my property to plant a tree on, Uh, you know, who, who is the audience for this and where does the change come from?
4: Yeah. So I think the audience is both cities, uh, city government, uh, but also community organizations and communities in general. So um, I think tree equity score is the first step for cities to be able to create policies that are going to push towards more equitable tree canopy across the city. And Tree Equity Score makes it simple for them to see where to prioritize. Sun Valley is one of those neighborhoods that has a low score. And we think it's it's low, partly because uh, it has low tree canopy cover. But the lower the score, the higher the priority. So that prioritization is based on identifying those historically ignored communities, whether it's high neighborhoods of uh, uh, neighborhoods of color, um, uh, high poverty neighborhoods, uh, seniors, children, uh, people with existing conditions. Um, so it, the, the score makes it easy for cities to say, Hey, these are the lowest scoring neighborhoods. These are the places where we should prioritize planting first, um, and, and create, uh, policies that target those neighborhoods for tree planting. But it's also from the other side, from a more grassroots side, it's a way for community organizations to make the case for their neighborhoods to say, hey, we've been ignored for too long. Uh, We need to uh, we need the investment and funding in this neighborhood to have a thrive, to really have a truly equitable and thriving city. Um, We need more trees here.
0: There is apparently money for urban forests in the federal infrastructure proposal in Congress. Could that be a game changer? Uh,
4: I think it could. Yes. Uh, there's uh, money for what they call healthy streets in the infrastructure bill that's uh, 100 million annually over five years. Um, to put that in context, currently urban and community forestry federally gets federal funding of about 30 million. Okay. uh a year and it's sort of fighting tooth and nail to get there um there's other sort of parts of the infrastructure bill that could contribute towards tree equity as well and uh femA for example the 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 brick program uh has a billion dollars for uh for resilience in, in in that program as well that could also go towards tree equity it's sort of where it feels like we're at a, a shift. In thinking about how we should be investing in urban forests. And it's, it's showing at the federal level. Chris,
0: this has been fascinating. Thank you so much for sharing your results with us.
4: Thank you so much for having me, Ryan.
0: Chris David is vice president of GIS and data science for the nonprofit American Forests. He helped create their new tree equity score tool. Here's a little John Denver from a public service campaign he did in the 1980s.
3: Plant a tree for your tomorrow. It's your tree that clears the air. Plant a tree, trees for America. Plant a tree today for all the world
1: to share.
0: Colorado Matters is on the road again this week, and our next stop is the Four Corners. Avery Lill will host tomorrow from Durango. Hi, Avery. Hi, Ryan. I wonder who you've met so far on your journey.
5: Well, I cannot wait to introduce you to a heritage fruit tree expert and farmer in McElmo Canyon. Uh, He co-founded the Montezuma Orchard Restoration Project. Um, And these folks, they're more like Apple treasure hunters.
0: Apple treasure hunters. Tell me about that.
5: Yeah, they comb through old newspapers to find what kind of apples farmers were growing for county fairs more than 100 years ago. Then they try to find where those trees might still be growing in the canyon, even if it's in a cow pasture. But part of preserving that history is also knowing that white settlers started growing apples in the canyon after indigenous people who lived and cultivated food there were forced out. And they're working with Navajo Nation and the Ute Mountain Ute Tribe on apple cultivation projects.
0: Very big tree theme in the show today. Did you get to eat any of those apples, Avery?
5: I did. The Thunderbolt apple is actually one of the earliest varieties of apples grown in Macalmo Canyon, It was sweet and juicy. It wasn't even completely ripe, but it is still one of the most flavorful apples I've tried.
0: In the Four Corners, you've also spoken with a diversity leader at Fort Lewis College in Durango, uh, which is reckoning with its own history.
5: I did. More than a third of students there are indigenous, but the college's history is steeped in violence against Native people. First, it was a military post to combat tribal nations. Then it was a boarding school to force Native children to assimilate to Eurocentric culture. The college's iconic clock tower has storyboard panels that don't represent that history accurately, and those panels are being removed next week. Hmm. Lee Bitsoy, who is associate vice president for diversity affairs at Fort Lewis, is Dene.
0: So it is personal to me because
2: my parents and my aunts and uncles attended boarding schools and I I see the effects and um, I also carry that intergenerational trauma.
0: So it's important for me to be able to contribute to the reconciliation
2: of Fort Lewis College and its complicated past.
0: You will also explore some public lands issues while you're there.
5: Yes, we will talk with Jonathan Thompson about his brand new book called Sagebrush Empire.
0: Avery, looking forward to it. Excited to hear tomorrow's show. Thanks, Ray. Avery, Lil on the road in the four corners. And I'll share a Southwest Colorado cookbook in our series The Kitchen Shelf. This one's all about cookies, and it's from a town that no longer exists. Still to come, we'll redistricting, amplify, or muffle Latino voices... This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
6: Maria Francesca Cabrini was only 30 when she founded a religious order in northern Italy, but what she really wanted to do was go overseas. Mother Cabrini came to America in 1909 to take care of Italian immigrants, first in New York and Chicago, then in Denver. She bought some land in Golden, cheap, because it did not have water. She reportedly touched a large red rock with her cane, told her religious sisters to dig, and the spring they uncovered continues to produce water today. Cabrini established 67 schools, hospitals, and orphanages. In 1946, she became the first Italian immigrant to be recognized as a saint, soon after named Universal Patron of Immigrants. Seventy years later, Colorado replaced Columbus Day with Cabrini Day, recognizing her kindness and compassion, and made the first Monday in October the country's first paid state holiday to honor a woman. A Colorado Postcard from Colorado Public Radio.
0: Starting with the Chicano movement of the 1960s and 70s, Denver's north side has been a stronghold for Latino political representation. But gentrification has brought big changes to the area over the last decade, changes that could be cemented in the state's new political maps. Our special series on redistricting and reapportionment continues now with Purplish, the politics podcast from CPR News, here is Public Affairs reporter Andrew Kenny. I see
7: that. Oh, and flan. Oh.
8: This story okay, so about Latino political really power, really power in Colorado is one about communities and how they change all across the state on a scale of decades. But we're going to start in a really specific place that actually okay, feels so like it hasn't changed that much. Really
9: good. I didn't know that they had those better.
8: The place is a bakery called Panaderia Rosales, and it's on 32nd Avenue in Denver, near a brewery and co-working space and new condo builds. It's basically surrounded by all the signifiers of gentrification. The bakery has thrived here for nearly 50 years. Inside, you'll find racks of dried spices, an old Dr. Pepper machine, and, of course, piles of sweets waiting in glass-fronted cases.
2: Yeah, they're called conchas. It's this bright, big, you know, pink.
8: Sophia Vargas stopped in about the same time that I did. She'd come to buy the conchas that her son has loved since he was little.
2: Sugar-coated pastry. It's delicious. They go
3: fast, especially when they're fresh.
8: This is a family-owned business, it goes way back.
3: My auntie is the owner now. My, the original owner is my grandfather. There's a picture of him up there.
8: That's Javier Rosales, and he's pointing to an old newspaper photograph clipped up above the kitchen.
3: Okay, his name was Jose Rosales. They called him pecas, which is freckles uh, in English. And him and my grandmother, they passed away in the 90s.
8: Javier will tell you that he is a Denver native. And actually, he grew up in the apartment right above the bakery. I live with
3: my grandmother. She'd have us come down and, uh, you know, get her... Pepsi's, bread, whatever she wanted,
8: eggs, you know, just... And from that apartment, Javier watched a neighborhood that was predominantly and proudly Latino as it became a greater political force.
3: I was actually a little guy. I was upstairs looking out the window and, you know, this big group of of people marching down 32nd Avenue, you know, they had Corky, they had uh, Sandoval, and at the time, I didn't know these guys were, you know, big figures. They knew my grandfather, you know, so I I watched pretty much the Chicano movement march down 32nd to downtown during the walkouts.
8: Those guys, they were people like Corky Rodolfo Gonzalez and Paul Sandoval. They fought inequities and racism, especially in education, and they wanted to make a distinct cultural and political identity.
2: We started sending people to the statehouse, Latinos from this neighborhood. Chicanos is what we called ourselves. And they became lifetime leaders from the community.
8: Back in the day, Rosemary Rodriguez was out in the streets with the movement, and she ended up in local politics, serving time as a Denver councilwoman and city clerk. That word she used, Chicano, it describes a culture really rooted in the Southwest. Some people say that the border crossed them because their families go so far back in the places now known as Colorado, New Mexico, Arizona, and many other places in the Southwest. And beyond the history, the Chicano identity is inherently linked to politics and self-determination.
2: Well, it's self-identification. It isn't a name that the census came up with or that the government came up with. It's how we chose to identify. So I think it represents personal agency.
8: And Rosemary Rodriguez said that when the community won political representation, concrete changes followed like medians and trees on busy Federal Boulevard, which north to south runs through a historically Latino part of town.
2: And it was just such a joy because it showed what all the years of advocacy for the improvements on federal resulted in.
8: Today, Denver's west and northwest side is almost entirely represented by Latino politicians, seven out of eight seats in city and state government. But as anyone who spent much time in Denver knows, this is one of the fastest changing parts of the city. And by change, I mean gentrification.
10: This neighborhood is ripe to be gentrified.
8: So I went for a drive recently with Amanda Sandoval. She represents this part of town on Denver city council. And when I asked her how the neighborhood is changing, she pointed to something kind of surprising and really specific, sidewalks.
10: So you see there's no sidewalks there. And that's a new house, and then it has sidewalks.
8: Sidewalks um, are one way you can see the contrast between old Denver and new Denver.
10: And then you can see lots of cars there, no sidewalks. Historical, probably lived there for a long time, generational, generational.
8: Sandoval's own family is one of those generational ones.
10: You see sidewalks. And sidewalk from Tijon to Pecos, where you
8: Her dad, see- Paul Sandoval, was one of the area's first Latino state senators. Her stepmom, Paula, was also a senator and a councilwoman. And now she represents the same area, but a much different constituency as new residents, many white and many affluent, have arrived.
10: I think that most people are drawn here because they want to make it their home. And home is where the heart is, right? And so I always start with that common denominator And so what I attempt to do is I attempt to teach them the history of this neighborhood and how important reflective representation is.
8: Much of Northwest Denver was once 70-plus percent Latino. Now the Senate district for this area is estimated to be about 40 percent Latino residents. And depending on where the final lines are drawn for redistricting, which neighborhoods stay in this district, which neighborhoods move to the adjoining ones, that number could drop even further.
10: To have less than 30 percent of a historically Latino population, it's going to just, it's going to change the the policies that you bring forward because the policies come from the people, right?
8: That points to a big question for the commissions. What is the right number to ensure that a community like Latinos in northwest Denver or any other group of people around the state can actually influence their districts?
9: I don't know what the magic number is. Is it 5%? Is it 45%? Is it 55 percent? Is it 100 percent? I don't know. That is for the commissioners to decide what the right number is. But I really do hope that they are thoughtful and considerate as they're drawing these maps.
8: Senator Julie Gonzalez ran to represent this area in 2018. That year, four of Denver's Latino state lawmakers were terming out on the west and north sides. And with gentrification in full swing, it wasn't clear who would replace them. You
9: know, each of us in our races were the only candidates of color.
8: All four of those Latino candidates won their primaries, which in this heavily Democratic area is really all that matters.
9: To see all of us emerge as the Democratic nominees was really affirming of the fact that um, that our constituents here in Denver wanted to see diverse representation, that they wanted to see leadership um, that was reflective of the diversity of Colorado. I was really proud. <laughs> I cried.
8: But what happens when those new representatives reach their own term limits in five years? I talked about that with Rudy Gonzalez. He's the son of Corky Gonzalez and he runs a statewide nonprofit called Servicios de la Raza. He says that after decades of work, Latino representation in Colorado is at its peak right now.
2: With the 14 who are now in the Senate and House we finally start to really see that our numbers are starting to reflect our demographic numbers in the state and the city.
8: But he's afraid that that might change soon, at least in Denver.
2: So As our elders, in which I'm one now, uh, continue to die off. If the kids aren't uh, going to stay there, you can't convince them to stay there if they want to sow because it's a windfall for them. uh, You know, it's their prerogative, you know, that 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 will hurt us, right, in terms of having representation there in northwest Denver.
8: And redistricting could amplify that change. Dense urban districts often see some of the biggest changes because moving a border even a few blocks, losing Latino neighborhoods along Federal Boulevard, for example, can significantly change the district's makeup. That has people like State Representative Adrian Benavidez watching the whole process really closely and kind of skeptically.
7: So as maps are prepared, they should not be prepared where they dilute the strength of minority groups at all.
8: She thinks the commissions may be leaning toward other priorities like creating competition, rather than preserving racial and ethnic voting blocks,
7: And we have 12 commissioners on each of the two commissions who intentionally have not been actively involved in this aspect of, of politics. And so they are truly drinking from a fire hose.
8: She's also concerned about whether the US Census, which was conducted under the Trump administration, actually got accurate data about where Latino people are living there's evidence that a lot of people didn't respond. But we do know, in broad strokes, that while some Latinos are leaving Denver, they're not leaving Colorado.
7: You know, there are many people of color that have been pushed out of those neighborhoods, primarily because of real estate issues. But people stay together. We've had, as Latinos, probably, um, if they have been priced out of Denver or can't uh, keep their homes, they move to Adams County or Lakewood, A little bit to Aurora, but not as much. Uh, So the communities stay together wherever they are.
8: Benavides herself lives halfway between northwest Denver, where people are leaving, and the northern suburbs, where many are ending up. So I kept going in that direction to talk to people about what population growth may mean for Latino political organizing and power after redistricting.
2: In half a mile, arrive at Commerce City.
8: Next stop was Commerce City, and the home of Teresa Bustos Ortega. She's on the CU Library staff, and I found her because she actually wrote into the commissions about the importance of giving her city's diverse voters a strong voice in state politics.
11: a little patch of grass, and that tree there is Maria. That's named after my mother. <laughs>
8: we sat in her backyard, which is beautifully landscaped, and ruled over by a single, magnificent, blue spruce tree.
11: From New Mexico, and she's about thirty. Eight
8: years old Maria the tree came from a family ranch in New Mexico and Ortega' kind of amazed that it's done so well here the neighborhood can be hot uh, not many trees and a lot of pavement
11: when I first her, my kids could jump over it I'm telling you about the tree because so it was charming is, but also because it shows here, how long Ortega has spent has
8: living in and thinking about this community as a teen she too was involved in protests for the Chicano movement but she had to travel to get to them
11: and I'm 15 years old and I'm worth Hitchhiking to Boulder because that's where all the action was at for the protests and whatnot and giving them our support. And we're just little.
8: Decades later, it's a very different landscape. With Latino families moving into Adams County, she sees a new community taking shape around her.
11: You can see it through uh, the stores, the restaurants. The colors of the houses. The
8: area has had an influx, not just of people moving from Denver, but also those who have recently immigrated from Mexico and other places like Central America. She really likes the changes they've brought, like a new grocery store.
11: You'll find chili there. You'll find mole there. You'll find, um, you know, corn tortillas. The
8: Mexican American culture of many of the city's new residents is different than the one that her family traces to northern New Mexico. But Ortega says they share political concerns, especially the need to fight for better education.
11: Because I think we still haven't moved forward.
8: She says there's still a lot of work to be done to get people politically active. And she understands that for many families, the first challenge is just keeping food on the table.
11: I feel that the problem with uh, Hispanics is that they're in survival mode. So they, how, can they, how can they be involved in politics when you're trying to put food on the table? There's no way.
8: But she's optimistic.
11: I see the powerhouse growing, and I can't wait. I'm just happy.
8: And there is a new generation of Latino politicians that's just getting started here. Jose Guardiola is an at-large city councilman for Commerce City. Both of his parents grew up in Mexico. He was born in Wyoming. He considers himself Chicano, and he ran for the job in part to represent the diversity within the Latino population.
3: And I was like, you know, I need to represent them because I live in two worlds.
8: The census says that this area is about half Hispanic, an ethnicity that overlaps with much of the Latino population. But as he started campaigning, Guardiola worried about how he would be perceived.
3: One of the thoughts was like, man, my name is straight Mexican, right? Jose Guardiola. Who's going to say that name, first of all, my last name? But then I remember my culture, my pride, and like, well, they're going to have to learn it.
8: That has not turned out to be an issue. He's now the latest of several Latino council members and state lawmakers from Commerce City. But Guardiola says that representation in the Denver suburbs has lagged behind the true size of the community. Part of the broader challenge is geographic. Families and friends and political influence can get a lot more spread out as people move into more suburban areas.
3: And to organize in such a vast area is a lot harder because you're, expand, you're extending it. You know, this person over here needs might be different from this person. And it's hard to get the similarities so they could organize compared to like the north side of Denver where gentrification was hitting
8: hard, right? And if it turns out Latino populations are getting more dispersed as they move out of the city, it could also mean they'll be diluted into lots of majority white districts. One thing I heard from every Latino politician in this story is that they didn't run just to represent Latinos. They work for all of their constituents. The issues State Senator Julie Gonzalez, for instance, has spent her first term on, like affordable housing, are pretty universal.
9: What an honor. And what a huge obligation and responsibility, you know?
8: But she says representation still matters, even or especially in parts of the city and the state that are changing so fast.
9: There's so many times where like, I don't even realize the impact that I am having just by being who I am authentically as a Chicana lawmaker. And then like a middle school uh, student will leave me a note. They will just really remind me of the importance of representation, of like, oh, thank you, Senadora, for coming and talking to my class. Um, That was really important. I've never seen anybody talk to me in Spanish before or talk to me and uh, recognize my neighborhood before.
8: Gonzalez's district could see some of the most significant changes from redistricting, but when she looks at the years ahead, she believes there will always be a Latino, a Chicano community, here on Denver's north side. One that'll remain a force in state politics, no matter where the lines fall.
0: Public Affairs reporter Andrew Kenny with Purplish, the politics podcast from CPR News. You can hear that in other episodes at Apple, NPR 1, and everywhere you get your podcasts. And we'll continue to bring you this special series focused on redistricting here on Colorado Matters. So thanks to the Purplish team and thanks to ours.
3: Carl
7: Bielick, Allie Budner,
3: Anthony Cotton,
7: Andrea Dukakis, Michelle Folcher,
0: Matt Hers, Michael Hughes,
7: Carla Jimenez.
0: Avery Lill. Pedro Lumbrano.
5: Patrice Mondragon.
0: Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.